0: All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, um, man, so good to see you. So good to worship alongside of you. I want to begin this morning um, by just wishing fathers a very happy uh, Father's Day. Uh, so thankful for you. So every father in the room, can we just say thanks to them, I should say. Yes, happy Father's Day, grateful that you're here, Uh, grateful that we get to again worship Jesus together. Uh, If you are a guest this morning, maybe we haven't uh, yet met, my name is Paul, and I get to be the teaching pastor here. It's a privilege and an honor to do something I'm very thankful for. Uh, If you are a guest, really one thing that we would ask of you, uh, sometime this morning there's a QR code in front of you. If you pull out your uh, phone, open your camera app, scan that QR code, it will direct you to lpguest.com there. There's a digital uh, guest information card. Fill that out if you would. Uh, We'd love to connect with you. We'd also love to donate to one of our partner ministries. Uh, there's a little option at the bottom of that, co- uh, of that uh, digital card. Select that. We'll donate 5 bucks in your honor. Again, grateful that you're here. Members, regular attenders, uh, welcome back. Well, hey, today uh, is week two of a series uh, that we've called Under the Sun. And if you're familiar with your Bible or if you were here last week, um, both of which would be helpful to you, uh, you'll know that we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay. As I said last week, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of three major wisdom books that the Bible holds within it. The Bible has all sorts of different types of books. We have the Gospels, for example, in the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament, and they give us the good news of the life of Jesus. Well, Ecclesiastes is written by uh, well, who we think is likely Solomon, or at least writing from the point of view of Solomon. Solomon was a very powerful king. He was the son of King David, and there was no one wiser than King Solomon. And what we see is that Solomon is writing this book to us to give us wisdom to say that if you live life to find meaning under the sun, that is, under the, under the sun in terms of that is things of this world, if you live your life to find meaning and ultimate purpose for what you can gain in this world, The tragedy is you will find that you will live a meaningless life. If you live for what is here and now, if all you try to do in this life is gain and gain, you're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to find what was it for. And so while that's really depressing, the good news, as we saw at the end of last week, is that God gives us a full life in an empty world. That's really the main idea, the major point of this series, that God offers us or gives us a full life in an empty world. And so what we now see, last week we looked at Solomon's sort of exercise of futility to say, look, I'm going to tell you that what does a man gain for all of his toil under the sun? That's sort of the argument that he poses. And then he follows up that argument with an explanation that says, hey, look, if you're alive or dead, the earth keeps spinning. The the streams and the rivers keep flowing. The oceans keep being filled with water. And then they go back into the streams. All that to say, whether you're here or not, the earth keeps going. And so he's asking us this question, look, what are you really trying to gain? What are you really trying to attain by living for this world? It's all going to keep going whether you're here or not. And again, that sounds really depressing, but we have to remember that God offers us us a better way. And so that was really chapter 1. And what we're going to see in the second half of chapter one, which we're actually not going to read today, um, is Solomon saying, or the the preacher saying, which is really the voice of Solomon. Let me see if I can try different ways to find meaning. I know this is the ultimate outcome, but I'm going to try different methods or different approaches to see what really will give me meaning. And so he tries the pursuit of wisdom. And what we're going to see throughout chapter two is he tries different sort of categories of pursuit to say, maybe this will give me meaning what I'm looking for. It's as if he has a list on his mirror in the morning and on that list is a checklist to say, wisdom, will that help me? Tried it, lived it to its fullest? No. And now he's going to give us two other pursuits that he pursues here in chapter two. Okay, so that's really the setup. That's where we're going. And I think there's benefit for that even though we know the end and even though we know the ultimate conclusion of Solomon's pursuits there's benefit in God's Word. Every single Word of God is, is breathed out by God and therefore benefit. it benefits us. And so I think there's benefit for us this morning. I want to pray for us and then we'll get into the text. All right. So let, let's pray together. Father, uh, we come to you in need. I come to you in need. God, would you give me clarity of mind this morning and, and of speech this morning uh, so that I can communicate your Word in a way that is understandable uh, so that we can see you more clearly. Uh, God, as we... As we really seek to, to dissect the preacher here, Solomon, and what it is he has pursued, would you, by the power of your spirit, dissect our hearts? Would you allow us to be confronted by the word of God in a way that transforms us and conforms us to the image of Christ? We need you. We love you. We desire you, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to begin in verse one, again, Ecclesiastes chapter two, and we'll see where the text leads us. The preacher says this, again in the voice of Solomon, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. And so here in verse one, he gives us exactly what he's going to do. And it's in a sense, the before and after of an epic DIY project that does not go well. And he said, I'm going to try this out. I said to myself, I said in my own heart, I'm going to pursue pleasure And we'll get into what that looks like. He he says to himself, I'm going to enjoy myself. And then in the end here, he says, but it also turned out to be nothing. It was vanity. And again, just to make sure we're on the same page, when the author uses the word vanity, we talked about this last week, the idea is a little bit like if you were to go outside on a cold day and exhale, you would see the breath from your mouth appear in front of you. And depending on how cold it is, it might look as though that were solid. It might look as though you could reach out and grab hold of your breath. But you know if you tried that, you would look ridiculous because as you wrapped your hand around that breath of air, it would evaporate and you would have nothing but air. That's the meaning of vanity. Saying, I pursued all of this. It looked as though I could gain something. It looked as though I could do something. It looked as though there was meaning, but when I laid hold of it, it was empty. If you're in the NIV translation, it will use the word meaningless. I believe the NLT uses the word meaningless as well. Vanity, meaningless. That is what the preacher is saying. And now in verses 2 through 3, 2 and 3, we get an explanation of some of the pleasures that he pursued. And there's some other verses later on in chapter 2 we'll get to as well. Now, what did he pursue? Verse 2, it says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched in my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Jump down to verse 8. It says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Okay. So Solomon here is pursuing all that the world would offer him in terms of worldly enjoyment and fleshly enjoyment. If you look at the book of 1 Kings in chapter 4, it gives us a little bit more detail as to exactly what Solomon's lifestyle looked like. What we see is that Solomon's household was so great, so immense, that it took 30 oxen and 100 sheep along with the equivalent of 30, 55-gallon drums of fine flour to feed his household in a single day. That's insane. That is excessive. That is over the top. All right? He, He talks about concubines. If you look elsewhere again in the Scriptures, in the book of 1 Kings, in chapter 10, what you see is that Solomon had 700 wives. How do you have time for that? That's a lot of anniversaries to remember. Probably didn't remember them all. Um, he also had 300 concubines, which is like, dude, I mean, I mean, that just like, take it easy, man. It's excessive and gross. And so that's what he, he is pursuing. And he says in verse 10, back in Ecclesiastes chapter two, he says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And I think it's just so important for us to understand that, that the world was Solomon's oyster, right? He had more wealth than anyone. He had more wisdom given by God than anyone to be able to make business deals, to be able to do all sorts of things, to amass himself great power, great wealth. Whatever he said, because he was the king, he was in charge, people had to do. He manipulated people, he took advantage of people and he gained it all for himself. And the reason I bring up these numbers and these statistics is because I think it could be tempting to say, well, maybe he didn't quite do it right. Maybe if I pursue pleasure as well, but I do it a little bit better and maybe I do it a little bit more, maybe I could actually attain fulfillment and meaning. But I think when we read these numbers, we say you can't do it bigger than Solomon did it. You can't pursue pleasure to a fuller degree or to a fuller extent than Solomon pursued pleasure. And what was his end finding? Vanity. Meaningless. That's what he comes up with. And so I think that's really category one. Solomon pursues pleasure in the form of enjoyment, seeking for meaning, seeking after meaning. There's a second category of pursuit that Solomon gives us here in Ecclesiastes chapter two. So if the first pursuit was enjoyment, the second pursuit is employment, okay? If you look in verse four of chapter two, verses four through seven say this. He says, I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, don't do that, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in Jerusalem." Notice sort of the plural nature of this. It doesn't just say I built a house and it was sweet. I built houses, many houses. It doesn't just say I planted a vineyard, and vineyards in that day were really the status symbol of I'm sort of a high roller. He built many vineyards, and they would have been opulent. They would have been sprawling. They would have been beautiful. He has lakes, essentially, to water his fruit trees. Excess. So much stuff. So many things. Again, if you look at other places in Scripture, what we see is that Solomon had 153,600 people working for him, most of whom were forced slave laborers. Tragic. 153,000 people doing every single word of Solomon's command. Excessive. And again, if you imagine one day after he's made it, after he's built all of his houses, after he builds the temple, after he builds his castle, after he builds his vineyards, maybe he walks out on the terrace, maybe his balcony, and he looks out at his sprawling kingdom and hoping in this moment, as he's been striving toward this moment for so long that he would stand here and say, I have done it, I have arrived. But instead, as he's looking out on his great accomplishments, what hits him? I still feel broken and I still feel empty. And I think so many of us could resonate with that. I think so many of us have tried to pursue pleasure in the form of enjoyment. And we've had conquests, perhaps, and we've done certain things, and we've, we've done things that the world would say, good, that's right to do. And when we've done them, what we found is that it didn't quite do what we were hoping it would do. And the same is true for our work. We pursue our work as a way to achieve status and accomplishment and then we achieve these things and we look at the next job. So we find, I think, the very same things that Solomon finds. And so two major categories of pleasure. Enjoyment. Employment. Now, verse 11, he says this. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded in doing, expended in doing it and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's just depressing. It's like, dude, you did all of that. Nothing. So then, what do we do? (laughs) It's always the question, right? That's our primary text for today, mostly verses 1 through 11 sort of smish-mashed together in a couple of different categories. What then do we do with that? And I think the first question we have to ask, and maybe it's a very basic question, but why doesn't enjoyment and employment bring ultimate satisfaction and meaning to our life? Why doesn't it? And it might sound like an obvious answer, especially given what we talked about last week, if you were here, but I think it's worthy of asking, and and I do want to do a little bit of a recap of last week because I think it's important foundational knowledge Because I want to assume nothing, and I think we should assume nothing. So why doesn't the pursuit of endless enjoyment and endless employment lead to our satisfaction of our souls? And again, we have to check ourselves in this because it's really, really easy to operate in the worldview of the world. And again, I know this is review for 90% of us from last week. What I said last week is that there's something called worldview, and a worldview is the lens through which we see the world and the value system, really, that we navigate within the world. And the thing about a worldview is that they're often adopted. Worldviews are a little bit like presets on your television. When you buy a TV, it comes with a preset saturation level. It comes with a preset aspect ratio. It comes with all of these different presets, and you plug it in, and there it is. Oftentimes, because we live in a sinful, broken world, and we ourselves are sinful and broken, we adopt the broken worldview of the world. We come with the preset of the world. And here is the worldview of the world. Again, we talked about this last week. Existentialism, number one. Nerdy word, I understand. Again, review. I'm sure you guys already have this. You could come up here and teach this already. But existentialism is the idea that an individual can stand, look at the world, and determine the meaning of the world. Existentialism is the idea that that something external does not give us meaning, Something outside of ourselves does not give us meaning, but we ourselves have the authority and the power to determine the meaning of the world. So that's sort of one part of the worldview of today. The other part is something called hedonism, okay? Hedonism is a worldview that says the ultimate aim of you is to seek pleasure. Your ultimate goal should be to find satisfaction. It's chapter two. That's hedonism. And so when you mash those two things together, what do you get? You do you, whatever that means to you. And oftentimes we adopt this worldview, we adopt this way of thinking, and we start living according to the values of the world, and we start pursuing pleasure to find satisfaction, and we start pursuing work to find meaning. And it's not going to work. Why? Well, if you stay within the context of Ecclesiastes, and there are many different verses that you could go to, But I want to stay in what the preacher says. In chapter 3, verse 11, the verse says this, Then I considered all that my hands had done. Excuse me, I'm in the wrong verse. Different verse 11. He said, He has made everything beautiful in its time, speaking of God. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The reason earthly things cannot satisfy our souls is because we were made for eternity, not for earth. We were made to find pleasure, to find joy, to find satisfaction, to find ultimate fulfillment in God, not God's creation. And it is really, really easy to fall into the typical pattern of the world and say, no, I think I can find fulfillment other ways. But your soul will not find satisfaction because it was made for somewhere else. It was made for someone else. It was made for God and to delight in God. And so we were made by God for God, and nothing but God can satisfy our souls. We were made by God for God. Nothing but God can satisfy our souls. So that's point one. I think the second thing we see from this text is this. We will rob ourselves of pleasure if we pursue pleasure without boundaries. Maybe it sounds a little bit backwards, but we, this, is, this is very true, and again, I think we see it from the text. Everything I teach and say, you need to say, okay, is it from the Bible? Is it true? Is this guy, know what he's talking about? Um, hopefully, uh, by the grace of God and through the Spirit of God. So we will rob ourselves of pleasure if we pursue pleasure without boundaries. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter one, I mean, it is the epitome of pleasure. Think about it. I mean, there are... Trees, beautiful fruit trees. There's God's creation everywhere. You're in the very presence of God. That, you were created for God. You were in the presence of God. That should bring ultimate pleasure. God says to you, eat of anything except that. Don't eat from that tree. Just don't do it, okay? Stop. And so there's, they're filled with pleasure. They're filled with, they're with each other, Adam and Eve. Clearly, there's an intimate relationship there, right? As God commanded there to be, he says, be fruitful and multiply, Okay? Pleasure is abounding, and yet they see this one thing that is out of bounds, and they say, I want that thing. So they go to eat the apple. Apparently, it tasted pretty good because Eve shares it with Adam. Do you ever think about that? If it was disgusting, Eve probably would have said, no, you don't want this. This is disgusting. But she ate it, and she's like, ooh, this tastes great. Here you go, and Adam was standing right there just as guilty, by the way. Eve always gets a bad rap, and she should to a degree, but so should Adam, both guilty. Anyway, um, all that to say, they eat this thing, and what happens? God says, you disobeyed me. And so, as a result of your disobedience and your rebellion against my commands, I'm going to remove you from the very epicenter of pleasure. I'm going to remove you and put you outside of the Garden of Eden. I'm going to separate you from my presence, which your soul was created to enjoy. I'm going to separate you from the wonderful, beauty, perfect creation and so they actually robbed themselves of the fullness of pleasure by trying to pursue a faulty pleasure that, that was out of bounds for them. And I think we see this in Solomon's life. I mentioned before, and there was a reason for it, the number of wives and concubines. It seems as though there's something in Solomon that says, just one more, just one more, just one more, just one more. And you could repeat that a thousand times times, literally, in Solomon's life. And you have to imagine, as he's getting just one more, hoping that that will give him something, he continues to find it meaningless. He continues to say, no, this isn't doing it for me, but I'm going to go for one more. Isn't this addiction? Isn't this what sort of wraps a hold of us? where we are consumed by just one more trying to find something that will satisfy these deep longings within us. And it gets a grip on our souls. And what happens is we're actually robbed from enjoying the very pleasures that God gave us in the first place. Here's the thing, church. I believe those of us who are married, you will enjoy your spouse more if your focus in your heart is on your spouse versus other people. Your pleasure and your desire for your spouse will actually increase if you cut off your desire for other people and other things. There's something fundamental in the way the human heart works. When we have a centrality of focus our desire and our enjoyment and our fulfillment for that focus will actually increase. And the sinfulness in us says, no, it's the opposite of that. But God says, no, if you will just focus on on the thing that I tell you to focus on, it'll actually make you happy. I believe that's true for our spouses. I believe that's true in our employment. If you're doing your job and all you're thinking about is the job that you want instead, you're going to hate your job. If you're miserable in your job, how often are you daydreaming about another job? And I would actually argue that if you were focused on the work God has given you to do in the moment, you would actually find satisfaction in the moment because you would find trying to be excellent in the moment, and that brings glory to God. And what happens as you try and and work excellently and with focus and diligence is you get noticed by leadership, and leadership probably going to give you another job anyway. And so we actually enjoy things more when we listen to God's boundaries. Seemingly simple. And again, we rob ourselves of the very joys God wants to give us when we try and move outside of those boundaries. I think the same is for our, it's true for our possessions. If you have something and you really, really want that other thing, you get that other thing and you really, really want the next thing, don't you? I do. I'm, sorry, that sounded very con- condemning to you. Like, I do that all the time. I really do. I have an issue with this. It's like, I have that thing. I want this thing. I want the next thing. I want the next thing. I want the next thing. And it's like, well, if you just are grateful for the thing you have, you'll actually be happier with that thing. So obedience to God's boundaries do not limit pleasure. Obedience increases pleasure. And again, I implore you, especially for those of us who are married, live this out. Live this out, and you will find deep satisfaction in your spouse. Now, next. I think this is super important um, no matter where we are this morning. I think maybe for some of us more than others, but I think we'll see where we go. We need to identify our delight because our delight directs our desire. And I apologize for the alliteration. Sometimes I just can't help myself. Um, we got, it just comes, it just flows out and I write it and I'm like, that's too much, but it's good. Um, we have to identify our delight because our delight directs our desires. Okay. And again, let me me show you what I mean here. Back into the text in verse 8, the preacher says this, I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many, what, concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And again, I mentioned the extent of these concubines and his conquests to a degree. And I think everything for Solomon, what was fascinating is that what you'll see in the book of 1 Kings is that it's actually his foreign wives, that draw his heart away from God. It's actually his, his pursuit of delighting in them that ultimately leads him away from God to abandoning God. And this book would seem to indicate that later in his life, Solomon did repent, but we have, we're given no definite record of that. We pray that's the case. Here's the thing, what we delight in, again, will we'll direct our desires. Uh, there's a, it's a very famous Bible verse. Right. Uh, Psalm 37, verse 4, it says this. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I think I think we like this verse because we like putting it on coffee cups. We like putting it on signs in our house. We like, it's it's you know, one of those sort of nice social media posts, right? Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. But here's the thing. I, I think oftentimes we emphasize the second half of that verse and not the first half of that verse. We like to get the desires of our heart, but I don't know how much we like to delight in the Lord. But here's the thing. If we want to be a people who actually find enjoyment who actually find fulfillment, who actually find some form of contentment, we need to be delighting in the right things because delight, see, it has this idea, church, it has this idea of sort of this this driving, the thing we delight in will really direct what it is we pursue, what it is we really live out. For example, God the Father uses this word when speaking of God the Son, Jesus, at Jesus' baptism, right? This is my beloved Son, he is my delight. All right, so everything is really focused on God the Father's delight is in Jesus. The focus is on Jesus. And everything flows through Jesus. And so my question is, if our delight is in our possessions, do you find that your pursuits will be geared toward and focused on gaining more possessions? If you delight, if your highest form of joy is found in pleasure, do you find that most of your life is centered around trying to fulfill that Thing that you delight in. So, my question is what is it that you delight in? What's at the forefront of your mind? What's at the forefront of your heart? What is it that's really driving your desires in life? Is it you? Is it things? Is it pleasure in the forms that Solomon is talking about? Here's the thing if you feel like you're pursuing the wrong things, if you feel like your delight has twisted and morphed, and out of alignment for where God wants it to be, there's really good news. God does not see you and condemn you. God sees you and calls you to repentance. And the wonderful thing about repentance in God is God will never reject us. I think so often we're fearful to repent because maybe we've repented to another person before and they've said, you did what? And they shun us and they rejected us. And I think the most terrifying thing for us is to be vulnerable and then to be rejected at our point of vulnerability. But God is very, very clear that while we're sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. He knows we're broken. He knows we're screwed up. He knows we're messed up. And so if you find yourself in a position where your delight is misoriented, there's hope. And that hope comes through repentance again. And that hope then directs you toward Jesus. So here's the thing, church. If we delight in Jesus, he will give us the desires of our heart. Here's the thing. Because our delight, our desires, excuse me, follow our delight, our desires will actually fall in line with what Jesus wants. Do you see that, right? It's connected. I'm not explaining it super well, but by the Holy Spirit, please make this make sense, God, because I can't do it on my own. And so here's the thing. How then do I delight in Jesus? Because that's a big thing to say. And it's like, yeah, okay, great, Paul. I understand maybe the logic that you're saying, but how in the world do I do that? That sounds very philosophical. I want to give you three things. And once again, I apologize for my alliteration, but we delight in the person of Jesus. We delight in the power of Jesus. We delight in the presence of Jesus. Number one, we delight in the person of Jesus. Um, if you just do a, a scan of the Bible and the, the, phrase, the verses that describe who Jesus is, I mean, he's just stunning. Right, I just want to give you a couple. Hebrews chapter one. Beginning in verse 1, as we delight in the person of Jesus. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his power and word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to ours. Jesus is magnificent. I want to give you another picture because I was reading last night and I was like, oh, this is so good. Revelations 1, Revelation 1, excuse me, 12 through 17, it says this. The Apostle John. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash, blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And his right hand was, held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." We should be blown away by the person of Jesus. And we should be blown away that that God lived like us. We should be blown away that that God knelt down and washed the disciples' nasty feet. We should be blown away that he was born in a manger. We should be blown away that he lived as a carpenter's son. We should be blown away that as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he allowed himself to be hung and nailed to the very tree that was created through his word. We should be blown away that God the Son would take the punishment for our sins from God the Father. We should be blown away that he sees us in our mess, in our filth, and in our death and does not reject us and say, you're disgusting, but instead he says, I want you as my son or as my daughter. We should be blown away that he gives us his righteousness. And we should be blown away that God the Father sees us through the righteousness of Christ when we repent and have faith in Jesus. So if we want to delight in Jesus, we need to delight in who he is as a person. Second, we delight in the power of Jesus. Right? We delight in the power of Jesus. And I very much just went through this. Jesus has the power to save your soul. He has the power to transform your life. He has the power to give you different desires. He has the power to bring you from death to life, to make you into a new creation. There are people sitting in this room who have been transformed by Jesus. And I pray is that as we step into life groups, we will see that he's real, that he's alive, that he really does change people. That people are different, not because they're awesome, not because they're more skillful, not because they're more intelligent. They're, they've been made new by the power of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Stunning. Next, we delight in the presence of Jesus. Jesus isn't like the watchmaker who makes the watch, sets the time, puts the watch down, and walks away. There's a view, there's a view, of God that says he's the watchmaker God. He set everything to motion, then he left it. Jesus is not that. God the Father is not that. He's very much involved in the everyday lives of his creation. Jesus promised us that he would send us the Holy Spirit, and he has the Holy Spirit of God to indwell us and live in those who profess their faith in Jesus. Jesus promised in Matthew 28, which we just spent a great deal of time looking at um, over the past number of weeks in our mission series, that we were to go into the world, make disciples, to baptize them and to teach them, and he would be with us. He also promised that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. What that means is that Jesus is in control and that there is safety in delighting in him and having our desires oriented to his desires out of our delight in him. Last point this morning, church, is that Jesus is worthy of our delight. He's worthy of our joy. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He is worthy of anything that we can give him. I just want to ask us, what is your delight? What are you pursuing? What are you you looking for? I just want to point you to the wonders of Jesus. He will receive you. He will love you like a son and a daughter. He will make you new. And you have the joy of living with different desires, with different passions, different pursuits that lead to the glory of God and the benefit and the satisfaction of your soul. You can live a meaningful life. And as I said last week, you can live a life that doesn't matter at all. The difference is Jesus. So this morning, I don't think there's any better way to close than to take communion together. And so I want to explain that a little bit as we get into that. So communion is a very special, a very sacred thing. When we are taking communion... Uh, what we are saying of our, uh, is true of ourselves is that uh, we have a faith in Jesus and that faith ex- expressly or explicitly is that Jesus died for our sins, um, that he was hung on the cross for us, um, that, that God poured out his wrath on sin against Jesus on our behalf. And so if you are here this morning and you may be joining us from another church, but you are a believer in Jesus, you would say, yes, that is true of me. We invite you to take communion with us. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I'm actually not yet a believer in Jesus, then I would say, please don't take communion because you would be saying something that's not true of yourself. And so scripture is very, very clear. Again, if you're not a believer, don't take this. But if you are, please take communion. Now scripture is also clear that we need to examine our hearts. We need to assess our hearts. And so I do want to give us a moment this morning just to repent to God if we need to repent. To assess our hearts, to examine, assess our hearts, to examine our hearts, to say, God, am I delighting in anything other than you? By your Spirit, God, would you change that in me? And so I want us to bow our heads, examine your hearts, pour your heart out to God, and then we'll work through the elements of communion. I want to give you a minute to do that. this time if you came in and you do want to take communion but you didn't receive the elements would you raise your hand our team will come around and give you the elements should you need them so go ahead and raise your hands we'll be around with those elements i'll read what the apostle paul says and gives us in the book of first corinthians wait just a second as i know folks are getting the elements still The Apostle Paul says this in the book of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So together, we take the bread. Verse 25, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my body. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so together we drink the cup. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we're grateful for our time together this morning. Uh, We're grateful for your word that it guides us and directs us. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you uh, please work in us obedience uh, to God? Uh, Would you reveal in us where our delight is misoriented, where we're delighting in other things other than you? Um, Jesus, would you be our delight, and would our desires follow our delight? If there's anyone here this morning who needs to take a step of faith, maybe for the first time, I ask by the power of your Spirit, God, you would do that. If they would say, I want to believe in Jesus, I want to live a new life, I want to step from death into life. So God, would you do that? I'm going to take that first step of faith this morning. God, again, we're grateful for our time together. We're grateful for communion, that we can be reminded of what it is to partake in the breaking Jesus of your body and the remembrance of how your blood has been spilled for us. It's in Christ's name that we come to you. It's in Christ's name we pray, God.